followers. Today we enter this intimate scene with a theme that will, that will dominate all that follows in these final hours. It's the theme of John's gospel. It's the, it's the, the fact of what we know John is. And uh, Christ now will demonstrate it before he discusses it. John begins with one of those phrases. I want to read it just by itself, all by itself. John chapter 13, verse 1. By the time you get to the end of the verse, it may not sink into your soul, but I hope you'll just take time to ponder this phrase because in a world in which we live, I mean, we, we live in a throwaway world, right? Um, I, I sometimes joke, since I just had this experience with my cell phone, I sometimes joke that cell phone contracts seem more binding than marriage contracts today. You know, it's like, and so everything is short-lived, everything's kind of tossed away, and in the midst of the world in which we live, John begins chapter 13, verse 1. So now before the feast of the Passover, not unusual itself, but Jesus now knows that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world. So his time had come. And back to the Father. Having loved his own, which were in the world, and this phrase, he loved them to the end. Have you ever done something that disappointed the Lord? He loves you still. You know something about yourself that others don't know, but he loves you still. You've disappointed someone. You've let down someone. You've been discouraged. You've been angry. Whatever the situation, but he loves you still. In both principle and practice, the emphasis is in every way on the love of God. Uh, the New International Version puts that, that phrase uh, in a little bit different, expanded way. And uh, they, they uh, put it this way, the f it, that God loves you to the, it's the full extent of God's love. It's this, the overwhelming, but I just love the way it, it phrases it there, that he loves you to the end. What we now realize is that everything Jesus has been doing grows out of the love of God. And in the passage before us today, four goals have been continually on the mind of Christ. Number one, he has come to fulfill God's purpose. Jesus has come to pay God's price. He's come to save God's people. And he's come to restore God's pattern. Now we can jump forward in our understanding that the disciples in the moment did not yet have. And we can put what we are about to witness against the backdrop of what we know Jesus is about to endure. What's about to happen. Which will climax with the crucifixion. And Jesus would then depart from this world as he references there in the middle of verse 1. While each of us have an appointed time of departure. right? We, we kind of have that sense that you know, we're going to live until the Lord calls us home, right? But imagine if it were possible, as Christ knows, imagine if it were possible that this next week, this next week, the Lord is going to call you home. Does that change your thoughts any? Does it change your focus any? Does it take your mind off of anything? Are some things less important? Right? Jesus is still focused on you and me in the midst of the most difficult circumstance that he is yet 
to face as he goes through this time of suffering and ends up on the cross. He knowing that is coming, he still takes time for you. You're still on his mind. Well, with all of that and uh, your own circumstance, Jesus has come to fulfill God's purpose, and may we always be about that, verse 2. And supper being ended, and the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We've kind of heard hints of that. Now it's, it's done. It's a done deal. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God and, and is going to go back to God, he rises from supper, and he sets aside his garment, and he takes a towel of a servant, and girds himself, and he pours water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. This is a living parable. We've seen parables. You know what a parable is. This is a living parable. Knowing everything, his betrayal, his denial by those that he cared for so deeply, the crucifixion when no one would defend him, yet he remained focused on why he had come. Even though he was profoundly conscious of the dark shadow of the devil's influence that had come now to rest in the heart of Judas, Jesus, Jesus seems more determined than ever to focus on his disciples and to prepare them for what he is about to endure. Jesus Christ, knowing what he will go through, is preparing them for what he is about to endure. Jesus was sent by God the Father and he was about to return. Everything was happening as it had been scripted in heaven. As John is writing this, he now has 20-20 hindsight. But on the evening of the events as they unfolded, the destiny of the world hangs in the balance and they don't yet understand. Despite everything and most everyone turning against him, Jesus lovingly remains determined to carry out his purpose that the Father had given him. The love of God that we see in Jesus Christ takes us to a higher plane of understanding, not just of the life of Christ, but the life we live. And that's what's going to be applied in this parable. That it will take us above the circumstances of life, the sufferings, the difficult things that we will face, and it takes us to a higher plane where we can embrace the eternal perspective even in the most difficult circumstances of life. And so the next time you're faced with a life struggle, you just can't seem to get through it, can't seem to get beyond it, it seems overwhelming. Remember Jesus, Hebrews 12, who endured such contradiction of sinners, or literally conflict against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your heart, or as you would know, know the phrase, to lose heart. Don't lose heart. Remember Jesus. Remember what he went through. And yet he prepared himself and his disciples to follow through. Jesus never made trials about himself. Jesus never blamed his difficult circumstance on someone else. He always stayed focused on the things and people that mattered most. 
fulfilling God the Father's purpose for his time here on earth. And may we do the same. Don't neglect the Father's purpose, the Father's will for you in the midst of the trials of life. If in your next trial, and you know they're going to come, right? If in your next trial you're tempted to abandon the Lord, even blame those who are closest to you, remember Jesus who loved you, loves you to the end. To the end. Even now, even in that next failure, frustration, circumstance. And remember Jesus who came to pay God's price, verse 6. Now keep that, that sort of living parable in your mind because we'll come back to reference that picture, that image. Verse 6. Then came he to Simon. So he's, he's going down the line, right? He's washing the disciples' feet. He's drying it with the towel that he's wearing, this towel of a servant. And he comes to Simon Peter. Peter is always the one who, right, you know he's going to say the thing that you're probably thinking. He's the guy at the party that says the things that everybody, it's on everybody else's mind, but nobody else wants to say it. Peter says it, right? He's that guy. And Peter says on him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet too? Why would he say that? And Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do, you don't yet know, but you will know hereafter. You're going to come to understand. And once again, this scene did not make sense right away. And in the following weeks, they would come to understand what Jesus has done is like this living parable that would illustrate the price of his coming into the world, the reason for which he was willing to go to the cross. There was a certain element of astonishment in the disciples as they witnessed what Jesus was doing. Remember what is happening as he sets aside his garment, puts on this towel of a servant, girds himself, washes their feet, everything about it. Like, what is he doing? It, they're astonished. They would even be more astonished as the week goes on. As it relates to the blood, it's all about our relationship to God. And I'll say more about that as we come, of course, to the cross and the blood. And we know that without the shedding of blood, and we say that at communion service. But the water, that's what I want to focus on in this parable. The water that Jesus pours into the basin is an illustration throughout Scripture. It's the same illustration that's used throughout Scripture of the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God to the heart of the believer. We know from Psalm 119, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto to the Word of God. The blood, which we remember in the communion service today, is all about our positional or judicial standing before God. And we know verses like of our salvation, like John 3, 16. But this is something different. The water in the living parable before us is all about our purification, our practical standing before God. Not our salvation, but you would know it as your sanctification. John will later refer to that when in 1 John 1, 9. You know this verse. This is not about salvation. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just, and he'll... Forgive us our sins and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's this parable. That's this living illustration that's taking place here in the upper room. The blood is judicial. The water is moral. The blood establishes our relationship with God. The water washes away everything that would hinder our relationship with God. 
everything about the water in this living parable. And you can take time and you could imagine whatever else you want to imagine because everything about it is an illustration of us living in the world. And so as we walk in the world and we kick up the dust and we get dirty and the stuff of this world kind of, some of it attaches to us and sometimes we just need cleansing. You don't need to get saved again, right? But we need cleansing. We need, we need to have that dirt washed off. Where do we find that? Well, what you're doing this morning. You find it in the Word of God. That's this parable. Jesus was acting out the explanation of why he had come into the world, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This was more than they could understand, more than Peter could accept, but it is the self-sacrificing part of the gospel that so many stumble over, and Paul would later describe in Philippians chapter 2. Perhaps you know these verses. You can look them up, mark them. It's a great passage to remember. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. When he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to even be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, right? This servant's towel, a servant, and being made in likeness of men. And he found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself, he becomes obedient unto death, and not just any death, but the death of of the cross, wherefore God is also highly exalted him. So he's about to leave this earth, he's going to return to the Father, and he's given him a place that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. Well, the fact that no one could ever stoop lower than what Christ has now done, no one could ever stoop lower than what Christ has now done is an illustration of a truth that our salvation could never in any way be dependent upon anything we could do because there is no way you could ever stoop lower than what Christ has done. It's dependent entirely upon him. The depth to which Jesus lowers himself is also a reflection of the need of our unsaved self, right? We could never save ourselves. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Well, Jesus came to fulfill the purpose that we could not expect. The disciples didn't expect it. He came to pay a price that we could not afford, no one could afford, and he came, number three, to save his people from their sin. Verse 8. Peter says unto him, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him, but if I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. And there's two different words used for washing here. You can see one that is bathing and one that is, you know, the, the washing of feet. Simon says unto him, Lord, well then if that's the case... Not just my feet, do my hands and my, wash my hair and, you know, let me get down under the water completely. And Jesus says to him, verse 10, he that is washed, bathed, needs not save to wash his feet. So you don't have to now, if you've just been bathed, 
You don't get my grandkids. I didn't get them out of the bathtub last night and then say, okay, now let's wash your feet. What's the assumption? That's already been washed, right? So if you've already been immersed, bathed, but is clean in every whit, and you are clean, but not all, or not, not everyone. Remember Judas. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all, not every one of you, you're not all clean. You're not all bathed. This is an illustration of a principle repeated in every other gospel. It is uh, repeated more often than any other phrase by Christ. You know it as, uh, and there's a whole other sections that go with it, but the first shall be last, the last shall be first, because only those who submit themselves to the gospel shall be saved. Perhaps it's the most often repeated concept by Christ because it's the most often used excuse for not fully trusting Christ. Because what do most people assume? They, or they'll even say, oh, I believe what Jesus did. I understand what he did. And I accept that fully for the payment of my sin. But, you know, there's got to be something more. right? We want to get down under the water again. Something that I can do. Something useful that I might contribute. Something that I could point to and I can say, well, that seals the deal for me. But from the outset, two things are evident. And Peter will prove them both. Number one, the ever-widening gap created by sin which man could never overcome on his own. That's number one. We can't do it ourselves. No amount of washing is going to do it. It's the bathing. It's the, it's the full cleansing by the, by the Spirit of God as we accept uh, salvation. Second is the angel declared that God sent his son in Matthew chapter 1 to be the Savior of the world. So we know there's an ever-widening gap that we can't do on our own. And that the reason Christ has come is to save people from their sin. And Peter is like the spokesman for us all on both accounts. First of all, suggesting that gap on his life is not as bad as somebody else. Because where did he start out this conversation? When Jesus comes to him, he says, what? You're going to wash? No, you're not going to wash my feet. Why do people reject Christ? Because they don't think they need him. Or they're not as bad as, I mean... Peter says, I would never deny you. How'd that work out for him? And he's probably thinking to himself, at least I'm no Judas. And that's the nature of people in most conversations. They just don't think they need. Like they're as bad as, or they're as needy as someone else. Secondly, he seems to suggest the common worldly indulgement that then comes after that. He says, well, if that's the case, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, my hair, you know, let's do the whole deal, right? And I've heard preachers, I've heard parishioners alike as to why they use the, the sense of grace plus, and they fall back into some pattern that they've been raised, you know, but I was raised that way. I believe in Christ, I believe in the grace of God, I believe that only Jesus can save me, but you know, this just... I just like this. It just makes me feel good. This is, it helps me feel like I'm saved. You know, like it's just the tradition of it. And you fall back into some pattern of life that you've been raised with because it just makes you feel better. Grace plus you, you name it. But my friend, we've all sinned, right? Romans 3 tells us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And Isaiah told us that all of our righteousnesses, if we tried to pile up all the good things we could ever do, they're just what? They're just stinky, dirty, filthy, rotten rags, right? We cannot save ourselves. And so if we, are, if we think we're just going to add more of the same, it only ever prove, further proves our guilt. The point is, the pardon of salvation is once and for all who believe. There's no earning it. There's no progressive pardon for it. There's no better or worse who needs it more or less. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. On the other hand, remember this is a parable, a living parable, teaching a truth to those who are his children. So this living, vivid illustration of what happens in conversion, a complete cleansing, bathing, immersion, which is the basis of our sanctification, the assurance of our salvation, and then becomes the foundation for the ongoing cleansing. To use it in doctrinal terms, you, you have those two terms, sanctification, salvation. Sanctification, right? The, the cleansing, the becoming more like Christ, The sanctification is not the basis of our salvation. You don't progress until you finally, okay, now I get it, I'm saved. Sanctification is not the basis of our salvation, but our salvation is the basis of our sanctification. Right? So Christ has come now. He has spoken to his own. He gives us this parable, this teaching. It leads us to understand that Jesus came to restore God's pattern for our life, how we should live in this filthy world. As we kick up the dust and the stuff of this world, how we should live, and that's verse 12. So, after he'd washed their feet, and he'd taken his garments and was set down again, he says unto them, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you know what I've done? You call me master, and that's good because I am, right? So I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Now, don't get all caught up on the the washing of feet other than as a parable to teach us a lesson. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent, is sent greater than he that sent him. So even Jesus has a recognition of doing the Father's will, and you're not better than Jesus. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. An important lesson for the Christian life. Not only is the joy of your Christian life lost anytime you act in some selfish desire, but so too is the fact that if you refuse to offer such humility to someone else in the circumstance of their life, you are yourself denying the grace of God that saved you. Your salvation is completely dependent upon Christ, but your joy in this life is conditioned upon your understanding of this parable that is enacted by Jesus. Jesus presses the point of sanctification. The self-sacrifice of Christ 
becomes the life pattern of God's children. That's the teaching of this living parable. The self-sacrifice in, in our life is how we live the Christian life, the pattern that God has established. Without this pattern, our life is like, like pieces of puzzle. person maybe is not a child of God because they cannot believe everything about Jesus and they can't give up that one thing that they just think is a hang up you know like oh I get it but and they throw something else in and some dear child of God is living a miserable life because it just doesn't seem fair you can't let go of it there's a habit there's an anger there's a resentment maybe there's just some person some one person, you got to hang on to that because, after all, that's the person you blame everything in your life on, right? So that's, that's enemy number one. And you can't let go of that. Arthur Pink, he's a theologian, 
wrote a super thick, in fact, three volumes about that thick on the Gospel of John. But he suggests the washing, with the washing, what else did Jesus do? And he made a lot of this. I, I'm not going to preach another sermon on it, but he made a lot of it. When Jesus washed the feet, what else did he do? He dried them, right? You remember that? He wiped their feet. So he washes the feet, and he doesn't leave them to drip dry. He, he dries them off there in verse, back up in verse 5. And he suggests the wiping of their feet is like the wiping away of the faults of others. While some application is made to the unbeliever, remember the main teaching of Jesus on this occasion is for the believer who himself needs daily cleansing, forgiveness, and must be willing to extend that same forgiveness to others and even a willingness to bury, just wipe away, just bury their faults. Believer and unbeliever alike, it may seem counterintuitive, but you always end up losing when you keep hanging on to anything other than Jesus. Anything. Anger, resentment, frustration, fear. Jesus is all you need, not just for salvation. But if you demand more of others, if you expect more from others than what Jesus has demanded of you or what Jesus expects from you, you will lead a sad, miserable, lonely, Christian maybe, but sad, miserable, lonely life. If you keep going through life making everybody do what Christ knows you could never do, I could never do, a life of self-sacrifice. That's what Christ is calling us 